Amen to that. Thank you, babe. I said babe because that's my wife, just so you know. <laughs> That'd be weird. Um, yeah, if, uh, if, you're, if you're a bit new to us, uh, my name's Pastor Phil, and I'm the pastor of this church, and uh, we've been uh, in a teaching series uh, called You Will Be My Witnesses, and it is essentially an expositional or line-by-line study of the book of Acts, and uh, last week, we examined Acts 4, chapter 4, verses 5 to 12, and uh, we saw through that text how Peter and John, the apostles Peter and John, uh, stood up to the Sanhedrin at a council meeting after being arrested and, and jailed for healing a lame beggar and for preaching the gospel in a place called Solomon's Portico. Uh, when the religious leaders asked uh, Peter and John where they got their power and authority to act, to do the healing, uh, to do the uh, preaching, Peter boldly told them that their power and authority came from Jesus of Nazareth, um, which was whom the religious leaders had uh, rejected and killed and whom God had resurrected. That was part of part of Peter's sort of uh, third sermon, if you will, before the Sanhedrin, before the uh, religious leaders. He also uh, pointed out how their rejection of Jesus had been foretold uh, through the Old Testament prophecy we saw in Psalm 118. And then at the very end of that section, in verse 12, Peter literally, very boldly, calls for the religious leaders of Israel, the highest-ranking court, uh, to essentially repent and believe in Jesus, to recognize their error as sinners that they had betrayed, rejected, and murdered their own Messiah, and then he calls for them to repent. He tells them that there's no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. And so he basically calls them to repentance. Amazing, amazing passage of Scripture. If, If you weren't here... Uh, I would suggest that you go ahead and read it on your own time and check it out because it is a phenomenal passage. All of chapter 4 is really phenomenal, but all of the scripture is really phenomenal. But great, great passage of scripture. Um, In our section today, uh, we will be examining how the Sanhedrin responded to Peter's declaration, to his words, to his little sermonette, to his call for repentance, to his identifying of prophecy or what have you. Take your Bibles and turn over to the book of Acts, and we're going to be looking at chapter 4, verses 13 to 22. I'll give you a second to turn over there. Acts 4, some of you are probably already there. Acts 4, 13 to 22. And as is our custom, what I'll do is I'll read the text aloud. You can follow along in your Bibles. And then we'll pray one more time, and then we'll begin to examine it together. Let's look at it together here, 4.13. It says this, Now when they, that would be the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. Now, we have to keep in mind, let's pause there just for a moment for those who were a little disconnected because you weren't here. 
These guys were essentially brought in for healing and teaching, and it was something that the religious leaders had to do. They were bound by their own law to examine anyone who came healing and preaching. And so the religious leaders are obeying their own law, and we'll touch on that a little bit later. So they've examined them, and it says when they saw the healed guy standing next to them, this guy had been lame from birth, and he was about 40. And so when they saw this guy standing there, they had nothing to say in opposition. They, they couldn't say that a miracle hadn't been done. They had really no case. And then it says in 15, but when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and we cannot deny it. But in order that we but in, but in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. That'd be the name of Jesus. 18. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. 21. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. Our last verse. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Father, as we begin to open up your word here as we begin to divide it and read it and, and study it and meditate on it and focus on it. God, I, I do pray that you would open our hearts and minds to you in this very moment, uh, that we would not be merely just following along to some sort of sermon or anything, but that we would be engaged with our minds, that we would be thinking and processing, pondering, and then with our hearts, God, that we would be receiving the invaluable truth of the gospel and of the passage here, of the text. God, you seek to do a marvelous work in our lives when the word of God is preached. And so, God, make it so. Help us to not be distracted. Help us to be focused. Help us to be attentive to you, listening for your voice and for your voice alone here this morning. Thank you, Jesus, and we pray it in your matchless name, in the name of Jesus Christ. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, let's begin to dissect, examine, whatever you want to call it. Let's take a look at it. Let's begin with verse 13. You all ready to go? Got a little note sheet, got a little pen. Maybe you've got like an incredible memory. I do not. But uh, let's do this. Verse 13. Now, when they saw the the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. Verse 13 seems to indicate that the religious leaders were pretty well blown away by Peter and John. The text says that they were astonished. Astonished, simply put, means to be struck with a sense of wonder uh, and surprise. Now, What caused this powerful emotion to overcome the Sanhedrin? Verse 13 says it was essentially three things combined. It was their boldness. 
It was their lack of education. And it was their commonness, their commonality. Let's take a look at each of these things here, right there, out of the text. Boldness comes from the Greek root word called parousia. Parousia means essentially to exercise courage. In our particular text, parousia is applied to Peter and John not because they courageously rescued a person from a burning building or something like that, because that's usually the kind of, you know, when we think of courage, it's somebody doing something like that. They're risking their life or something in, in that particular way. It did, this this parousia isn't applied to them because they did something of that nature, but because they courageously declared in a public setting their strong beliefs about Jesus Christ, as well as an Old Testament prophecy that showed the Sanhedrin's error and that Christ was the only one that could heal and save these religious leaders. What blew them away was the boldness to speak so openly about Jesus Christ in that kind of setting. It was parousia. It was major, major, major courage that they displayed there. Incredible. Now, what about uneducated? That's the next thing that we see there in the text. What would have triggered the religious leaders into thinking that Peter and John weren't educated? Uh, Their vernacular would have been a dead giveaway. Galileans spoke the same language as Judeans, which was Aramaic, but their version was a little different. Uh, It was simpler, and it had a little bit of a country twang to it. Right? had a little bit of a country twang to it had a little bit of a country flavor to it. It was a little off from the Judean version. Now, this was due to the fact that Galilee was a farming and fishing community. Uh, It didn't have universities or schools of philosophy, schools of religion, or anything of the sort. Galileans were not dumb. Galileans, some of them probably were, but they weren't dumb because they had a different way of communicating. It didn't mean they were dumb. It didn't mean that they were ignorant. It just meant that they were a little simpler because of their environment. Why would you need such a vast vocabulary when you're out behind an oxen? You know, the fifth lateral of the seventh equinox. The oxen's like, I mean, it, it doesn't, why do you need, what kind of education, and I guess you do need some to do agriculture or whatever, but I mean, really, do you, you, know, do you have to go to a four-year? Do you have to get a doctorate to be able to do these things? It's just basic common labor, good old-fashioned hard work. And so there weren't, it, there weren't universities, there weren't training centers, there weren't religious hubs or anything like that where people were educated. And so they spoke the native language of their land, which was Aramaic, but it was just a, maybe a little li- more limited than the other versions that were out there, a little narrower, I don't know. But they weren't dumb, they weren't ignorant. They were just simple and hardworking people. Now, Galilean Aramaic, when spoken, was easily, very, very easily noticeable by non-Galileans. I mean, you could tell when you were around someone that was from Galilee. Earlier um, in the gospel narrative, during the late night trial of, of Jesus Christ, Peter was confronted by people who were gathered in the high priest's courtyard. And they were 
Jesus was inside the high priest's residence and, and they were judging him in the middle of the night. It was a mock kangaroo court and there were religious leaders in there. It was this terrible thing that was happening in the middle of the night. Well, Peter was out in the courtyard warming himself by the fire and apparently he was carrying on conversation with those around him or what have you. Now, what happened was somebody or a group of people suspected that he was a follower of Jesus of Nazareth. And they cornered him and said this to him in Matthew 26, 73. This is fascinating. Certainly, you are one of them. One of what? The followers of Jesus, maybe one of his leaders. And then they said this, for your accent betrays you. You know, I know Jesus a little bit. I was down there in the back. I mean, they could just tell. I don't think he was saying that about Jesus, but he was talking, and he had a, he had a particular way of speaking and, and a particular way of articulating, and, and people picked up on it, and they immediately deduced that, man, he had to be with Jesus because he's talking like a Galilean. Why would a Galilean be in this courtyard in the middle of the night? He must have come with Christ. He must have come with Jesus. He must have followed. So it's very interesting. People could pick up on his accent. The speech of a Galilean literally stuck out like a sore thumb to non-Galileans, just as the speech of a southerner, <laughs> right? Just as a, the speech of a southerner or a Minnesotan. <laughs> you heard one of those guys? Hey, you betcha. You know, it, it stuck out to them like a southerner's speech or a Minnesotan's, you betcha, would stick out to us. We'd be like, you got to be from somewhere else, man. You got so many yees and y'alls and everything in there. You got to be from the south. I mean, it, you would know. You would know. When Peter spoke in the hall of hewn stone during this trial in front of the Sanhedrin, they recognized his vernacular and deduced that he was from Galilee. And then they stereotyped him as being uneducated. So often we do that, right? Well, we know where they're from. You know what that means. Dang. That's typically what we do, and what they did was they stereotyped him, saying that he, or perceiving that he was uneducated. Why? Because of where he was from, and because of how he talked, because of how he spoke. Now, the third thing that perpetuated the Sanhedrin's sense of astonishment was Peter and John's commonness. Their commonness was derived, as their speech had been, from their location in Galilee. If you knew that someone or you suspected that they were from Galilee, chances are 99 out of 100 times they'd be pretty common folks, average folks. Galileans were absolutely uh, common folks who had common jobs, who lived common lives. Galileans were not sophisticated. They weren't high-tech uh, they would have had no idea what an iPad is. They'd have been like, what the heck is that? They had no idea what that was. They wouldn't have been up to par with the latest fashions or trends like the wealthier Jews or Jews from Judea or from other areas. They would have been completely bizarre to the Romans who were, man, that was the most advanced empire or nation in the world at that time. I mean, they had modern plumbing and, and all kinds of things. They were very, very advanced. Now, Galileans were people of the land. Farmers, people who walk around with potatoes hanging out of their pockets. Hey, what's happening? You know, I mean, they were just normal, average folks. They were common, common people, man. Potatoes, that's weird. So, they were common folks. Now, verse 13. Common, the word common in verse 13 is, is, is translated as a really, really interesting, neat word in the original language, in, in the Greek. 
and it's, it's called idiotes. <laughs> That's where we get our word idiot from. Literally, idiotes. They were idiotes. They were com- Now, what, what is an idiot to us? It's someone who's a little dense, someone who does stupid things based upon their limited knowledge, whatever you want to call it. Idio- that's an idiot. Now, idiotis is a little different. Idiotis doesn't denote that the, these guys were dumb or anything like that. Idiotis denotes their social status, or maybe we would call it their pay grade. Uh, our equivalent would be blue-collar. Idiotis meant blue-collar, hard-working, land-working, common, uneducated folks, common clay whatever you want to call it, idiotis. Now, when you boil it all down, the religious leaders were taken by surprise and then filled with a sense of wonder by how two uneducated common guys exercised such great courage and boldness. It blew their minds. They, 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 they couldn't, in the moment, rationalize. They couldn't put this together. How could two guys that were so common, idiotes, blue-collar average guys, stand before us and proclaim their beliefs and what they claim is truth. Call us on our junk so boldly, and if you read the sermon so incredibly clearly, how could these two common average Galilean guys find the bridge between Psalm 118 and their rejection of Jesus Christ, the stone that the builders had rejected. This was something that Peter knew. This was brilliant. He knew that that Psalm 118 was about the religious leaders being the builders of religion in that community and that they had rejected. That's what Psalm 118 says. How did they know that? How did two common guys, how did two guys who had never received any rabbinic training, the guys that, that, that were interviewing them must have had walls filled with diplomas and certificates, walls filled with, with degrees. I mean, these were the, 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 what we would call the smartest, most brilliant, most educated people in religion anywhere in the world. Their beliefs weren't loose. They were, they came, they were all based out of educational things. And so they just, they couldn't, it, it just, it just, they were astonished. What? Did you just hear what these guys said? Look at them. They don't even have shoes on. Huh? And then it says at the end of 13 that the religious leaders recognized that Peter and John had been with Jesus. Oh, had been with Jesus. Notice how it says, had been. You see, the Sanhedrin was comprised of mostly, um, give me their name real quick, Sadducees. Sadducees, we talked about this last week, maybe the week before, I can't, my memory's terrible. Couldn't even remember who the guys are that are persecuting him right there. Sadducees rejected all things miraculous, all things supernatural. They absolutely rejected those things to the absolute highest level. And so there is no way that they could comprehend the truth of the matter, which was that they had not been with Jesus, but that Jesus was actually in them, that Jesus was actually teaching through them. 
See, that's what it means to be filled by the Holy Spirit. It's a supernatural thing. That the very presence and spirit of the Son of God would indwell a person powerfully and give them words to preach and to say and to articulate the gospel. See, that's what's actually going on. They thought that they had been with Jesus. But what they didn't understand was that they were with Jesus, that Jesus was with them in the deepest sense of intimacy within them, inside of them. It's amazing. The truth is Jesus was in the men and speaking through them at that very moment. That is what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, G. Campbell Morgan wrote a great paragraph or short paragraph on this in one of his commentaries. He said, notice the mistake the Sanhedrin made. This was the result of their own philosophy. They spoke of the men as having been with Jesus in the past tense. What was the truth? Christ was in the men and speaking through the men. And the similarity that they detected was not created from a lingering contact from a lost teacher, but by the presence of the living Christ. Isn't that amazing? Sanhedrin had no concept of that. They rejected supernatural things. They didn't even believe that there exists a spirit within a person. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in resurrection. They didn't believe in spirit at all. There's no such thing as spirit or a spiritual realm. And so they just figured, man, these guys have been with Jesus. They didn't know that Jesus was in them. Now, what was it that triggered the Sanhedrin's recognition? It was the realization that the apostles were doing what Jesus did. Like the apostles, Jesus had boldly and fearlessly confronted the Jewish leaders with his authority and truth. He, too, had no formal rabbinic training. Yet in his sure handling of the Old Testament scriptures, he had no equal. He had no equal. Jesus had also performed many miracles during his earthly ministry. Peter and John were on trial largely because of the miracle that they had performed. Let's look at 14. It says, but seeing the men, seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. While in a state of astonishment, being blown away by the speech and this declaration and the boldness and the commonality and the educational component or whatever you want to call it, while they're filled with a state of astonishment, they began to look at the healed man. They saw him standing there in perfect health with strong, supportive legs. And this had been a guy who had laid in front of the entrance into the temple for, I don't know, 30 years, 25 years, an enormous amount of time. And they looked at this guy that they were all familiar with. They had to be. Everyone knew who he was. And they just stared at him. And then it it says that they had nothing to say in opposition. The religious leaders had to have known who this guy was. They probably passed him by as he sat on his mat begging at the beautiful gate every day as they went into the temple area to work. The proof 
that a miracle had taken place through the ministry of Peter and John was just absolutely overwhelming. It was standing in their midst was the healed man. They couldn't deny the reality of it or explain it away. Now look at verses 15 to 16. But when they had commanded them, Peter and John, to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. The religious leaders asked the apostles to step out for a moment while they deliberated. They all concurred that Peter and John's works were legitimate, undeniable, and had already become well-known. They said that all of Jerusalem knows about it. I mean, this was less than 24 hours later. This was probably 12 hours later, and all of Jerusalem was infected by this divine miracle, by this work. So many people had witnessed it and went out and talked about it. It probably stirred up the community. This is something that they hadn't seen since Jesus was around months earlier. They all concurred that what happened was legitimate, undeniable, and it become well-known. If you were with us last week, you heard me say that the religious leaders were required by law to examine any prophet, any prophet who healed or taught the Jewish people or used a healing as a means to teach the Jewish people. They were to assess them to see if their sermons led the people away from God or to God. If they led the people away, if they were deceptive and led people into idolatry or something like that, which happened all the time, the nation of Israel was required to kill them, murder them, beat them down, stone them to death. They were enemies of God, enemies of the people. They had to do it. It was like capital punishment. If they led the people to God, they were required to welcome them and provide them with a platform to do their ministry. <laughs> Peter and John healed a man and then used the healing as a means to preach the gospel, and then they were brought in to be assessed. This is exactly what's happened. After Peter and John made their defense and provided a physical witness, the healed man, the religious leaders ended their assessment in opposition because they found no faults, they found no errors. Therefore, at this point in the narrative, the Sanhedrin was now required by their own law to welcome Peter and John into the teaching community and to allow them to use Solomon's portico, which was a major teaching center, to educate the people and to advance their ministry. They were bound by their own law. They found no fault with what they had done. They may not have liked some of the things that they said or who it was based upon, but they certainly couldn't prove that these men were there to lead the people astray. Miracle had been done. There had been teaching that backed it up. There had been prophecy that had been answered to all of that. They made a great, compelling case. And I might add that they made it in a loving, respectful way. They didn't just get up there and, hey, you don't know what you're talking about. Ah! They were very gracious in the way they shared the truth. Their ministry should have been accepted. Let's take a look at their decision. Look at 17. This is what they said to one another as they... Apostles were out waiting to be called back in. They said this, but in order that it may spread no further among the people, 
Let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name, the name of Jesus. The religious leaders disobeyed their law. They rejected the truth. They rejected the proof. And they developed a fear-based strategy to try to silence the apostles so that the gospel would not spread. Bottom line, the members of the Sanhedrin were blinded and controlled by Satan. Satan is the one that blinds people from the truth, and he is the one that works feverishly to curb the gospel in order to keep men ignorant of their sinful condition and tremendous need for God's mercy and grace. The Apostle Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians 4.4, The God of this world, speaking of Satan, speaking of the devil, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Any opposition to the gospel when it is presented is of the devil. People may not recognize that they're serving the devil in that moment. They may not recognize that they've been so strongly influenced, that their hearts are so calloused and cold towards the gospel, towards God. But that's the reality of it. The devil is the one that is behind these kinds of things, these rebuttals, these refusals, these, these attempts to stop the gospel from going forth. It is he that does that. One thing that came to mind as I was writing this portion is the spiritual warfare that was going on during this whole thing. Some of you have heard of spiritual warfare throughout the Bible. Now, (laughs) you have Peter who was filled with the Holy Spirit, which is the living presence of Almighty God. He was preaching the gospel, which is God's message of salvation to sinners. God was present in Peter, in John, and through them, and seemingly present in the healed man. He was present, speaking through these guys, primarily Peter, in the hall of hewn stone. He was present there, and so was Satan. Satan was there. Satan was made manifest so very powerfully in the lives of those who led Israel's religion, the Sanhedrin. He was present. And so when you have Peter proclaiming the truth of God and you have the opposition on the other side, there exists a battle, a spiritual battle, spiritual warfare. Have you ever experienced this? Have you ever experienced this? The last time that I really sensed it was during our Easter service. During our Easter service, I was preaching the Word of God and preaching the Gospel, and there was just something off that day. And I I tried to say, it's you, Phil, because maybe you didn't get enough sleep last night, maybe you didn't have enough Wheaties this morning, something's going on. And yet, as I'm preaching the Word there were so many people in our midst that were incredibly distracted. I had one guy staring at me the entire time I was preaching going, how do you preach with that there? Somebody get me a horse blinder. And then he'd just nudge his wife and, I mean, just, do you remember the time where I was actually, that morning, if you were with us, I was talking about the cross and somebody went, ha! 
That's a hot moment, isn't it? Jesus died on the cross. He bled. He's been beaten and bludgeoned, and he's got a crown of thorns, and he's jacked up. Ha! And, and I was up here, and I, you may have been out here going, what was that? I was up here going, what is going on in here? We're at war. That's what I felt. I felt the presence of evil made manifest in the distractions, made manifest in the weird comet, in the, in the, the hateful stares and, and those things. And it happens all the time, I suppose, but the last time I really noticed it was during our Easter service. The reality is when you're preaching the gospel, it's going to be there. The presence of evil is always around, but it's really made manifest when the truth is being proclaimed because now the demons shudder and Satan goes, we've got to do something about this. Create a distraction. You know, why is that guy dancing over there? There's no reason to be dancing right now. Satan's got him, you know, and he's like, you know, he's like Pinocchio, you know. Yeah, it's just, it just it's weird, but it, it, it's weird, but it, it, it's kind of creepy. I remember one time as a, as a youth pastor, I had to literally stop one of my sermons in the middle of it, and the room was dead quiet, which is a miracle second to the resurrection of Jesus Christ in a youth room. <laughs> Usually they're like, <laughs> you know, I get hit by a rubber band. I'm like, the gospel, the cross, you know. I mean, they're just, the kids are just like, you just, I threw a flip-flop at a girl and hit her in the head one time. I was just like, that's it. She's like, I'm telling mom. I'm like, there goes my job. Well, felt good. It, the room was dead quiet, and I was preaching the gospel, man, and, and, and then all of a sudden, I felt this amazing rush of cold. And I was like, is, did, did the air just come on? I mean, this was the middle of winter. Somebody could have been back there going, watch this. <sighs> you know? It didn't happen. It wasn't on. There was nothing blowing. There was heat. And, and, then, and then I really sensed this darkness and, and death. It felt like it was in the air. It was weird. And then all of a sudden, I completely lost my place. I was like, and then it, I just got the stare. It was like my brain. And then I realized, you're under attack. That's what's going on here. You ate breakfast. You did all the things you were supposed to do. And, and I was under attack. I felt like I was under attack. And I immediately just, I just stopped my sermon and just prayed out loud against Satan. And then all of a sudden, those, the presence of those things fled. In the name of Jesus, leave. And it just, all of a sudden, it was like, and then back to our sermon. It was just weird. It was crazy. One time at the park, we used to go to Insulin Park and feed homeless people and stuff. We were down there. We share food and truth with them. Uh, we did it as a youth ministry all the time. The Rogers were involved. It was great. Cameron, you were out there. There's a lot of people out there that are here. Awesome. And there was one time we were sharing with a, a handful of guys. And they were very like, yeah. And they were on the bleachers over there by the softball field. And all of a sudden, this guy just starts mumbling profane words. It's almost like a tongues or something. And they were like F-bombs and all that. And I was just like, dude. I felt like, you know, for once, I wish I was a Pentecostal. I wouldn't put my hand on me. You know, and healed, you know. I just, I didn't have the faith or whatever. But it was... It was bizarre, man. It was, I just knew that Satan was present, that the devil was there. And it was, just the, it was just the craziest thing. Have you had one of those experiences? Can you imagine how thick and, and 
dense and insane it must have been in this religious hall where they, they deliberate and, and, and talk about the things of God and all these things. Can you imagine when these guys were in there proclaiming the gospel and they had all these people who were incredibly opposed to Jesus? In fact, they had murdered him just months before. Can you imagine what it must have been like in there? If any one of us would have been in there, we'd have been just like, <gasps> I mean, it would have just been intense. Spiritual warfare. Why? Because Satan is opposed to the gospel. When the gospel is preached, he is there to try to intercept it. He is there to try to cause those who are listening to fumble, to reflect upon their own lack of belief or their own pride or their own desires and their own way of life and their own goodness. That's what he does. He comes in and he just, he's like Jesus said, he's a thief. And all he does is come, kill, destroy, and steal. And it was happening in this place. What we've seen is the fruit of that. Because they preached the gospel, sent them out, and then they deliberated, controlled by Satan, and wanted to stop what was happening. We must stop it. The Sanhedrin, led by the power of darkness and the devil, conferred with one another, then conceived a strategy to warn, threaten is a better word, or threaten Peter and John not to speak the name of Jesus again. Look at how they warned them when they brought them back in. Look at 18. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. They called them back in into the hall of hewn stone, this place. And it says they charged them. Charged is a strong, authoritative warning. It was meant to generate a deep, deep sense of fear of reprisal. They charged them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. And what do we see here? The Sanhedrin wasn't satisfied with only prohibiting the apostles from merely teaching in the name of Jesus. They didn't want them even speaking or talking about him at all. Do you see that there? It's not just you can't go into Solomon's portico and teach like that anymore. Don't ever do that again. It's we do not want to hear his name on your lips. Sound like the devil? He hates the name of Jesus because he hates the person of Jesus. They weren't permitted to talk about him, to have conversation with one another about the Lord, most certainly not to preach about Jesus in Solomon's portico or anywhere on the face of the earth as far as they were concerned. For them, from this point forward, there was to be no further mentioning of Jesus of Nazareth. And the warning that they gave was of the strictest sense. They charged them. Don't do that again. We charge you by the power and authority of the Sanhedrin to not teach or talk about Jesus whatsoever. MacArthur has great commentary on this verse. He said, ironically, the early believers had to be commanded to be quiet, while many modern ones have to be commanded to speak. See, back in the early days of the church, People had to tell the Christians to shut up. Today we have to tell them, why don't you try talking about Jesus with somebody? Why don't you try sharing the gospel with somebody? You see the difference? Some of us, I, 
get it. And Jesus is always on our lips. We're, we're bold. We're courageous. We're fearless. And yet some of us just cower. The opposition is just, we feel that it's so strong and that we, we, we have to be commanded, prodded, to actually speak the name of Jesus, to even share our faith, to share the gospel. He's on to something here. He says, this was an important crossroads in the history of the church. Had the apostles acquiesced to the Sanhedrin's demand, all subsequent church history would have been radically different. If they'd have gave in, things would have changed. Everything hinged on their willingness to obey God at all costs, even their lives. Look at Peter and John's response in 19. I love it. Oh, man. A lot is hinged on this response. But Peter and John answered them, We're going to run for the hills. No problem. We will never say his name again. No. They said, Whether it is right in the sight of God, in the sight of God, to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Translation, Peter and John did not vacillate. They did not shrink back, but immediately answered that they would refuse to obey the Sanhedrin's command. They refused by asking the Sanhedrin another trapping question, which put the religious leaders in a dilemma, in another dilemma. Peter and John asked, paraphrased, I'll say, which would you prefer for us to do? Listen to God or listen to you? We'll let you decide. What do you think the religious leaders are thinking now? Dang it! They keep doing this to us. What's it going to take? You think we ought to obey you or God? We'll let you go back and deliberate a little bit about that. We'll be over here having a cup of coffee. <laughs> I, he completely, like tennis, hits the ball into their court, asks a, a, a probing question which is designed to expose them, their maliciousness, their false motive. Which would you prefer for us to do? Listen to God or listen to you? We'll let you decide. And then they told them, very boldly again, that they had to obey God by speaking of what they had, what had seen and heard. The Sanhedrin was in trouble again, just as they had been back in verse 9 when Peter and John did this to them before in a different way. They absolutely did not want Peter and John to continue to speak or teach about Jesus but they could hardly tell them to obey them or men instead of God. And that was exactly what Peter and John said that they were trying to do and exposed them as what they were trying to do. You want us to be silent? But God commanded that we speak. Who should we obey, God or you? If the Sanhedrin had said, obey us, the witnesses that were gathered outside would have been outraged because they believed that God had done something incredible through Peter and John. This could have led to a riot. This could have led to an uprising or something of that nature, which could have caused the Romans to exit 
the Tower of Antonia, which was very close. They could have exited it like a swarm of African killer bees and just wreaked absolute havoc upon the religious services and the money-making schemes that the religious leaders had set up at the temple. The Sanhedrin was charged by Rome to keep the peace or pay the price when it came to religion. We're going to let you continue to do your little Judaism and kill all these animals, and we think it's disgusting and stupid. You ought to just believe in Hercules because he's really strong. We're going to let you continue to do these things, but if it gets out of control, we're going to whoop you. Don't let it get out of control. And there were many uprisings throughout their history, throughout even times during Jesus. How how do you think... uh, uh, Barabbas got captured. There was an uprising in that temple area, and he, he basically killed someone, a Roman official or whatever, and he was on trial for murder, and they let him go. But, I mean, there were uprisings of things. And, and the Sanhedrin's responsibility was to keep the peace at any cost or pay the price. They'd get shut down. Their religion would be shut down, this machine, this mechanism, this money-making thing that they had going. The Sanhedrin was therefore trapped. How did the Sanhedrin answer Peter and John's trick question? Because you see, now, they were trying to trick Peter and John and and saying these things, and, and yet Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, flips it on them every time. How did they respond to this trick question? Well, they didn't answer it. Instead, they responded with more threats. Look at 21. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them. And listen to what it says, because of the people, the witnesses, for all of them were praising God for what had happened. The Sanhedrin did not like Peter and John's response, it's obvious. They were hoping that Peter and John would submit to their authority and forfeit their ministry, but they didn't. Peter and John stood their ground and obeyed God. So the Sanhedrin did what? They further threatened them. Last night as I was just kind of working on this sermon and and contemplating these things and thinking about it, this thought kept coming to my mind. What did the Sanhedrin actually threaten to do? We know that they warned them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus, but what would have been the punishment if they disobeyed. Do you see it in the text? It doesn't exist, does it? You don't see, if you keep, we're warning you, if you keep doing this, this is what will happen. You don't see any of that there in the text, do you? All you see are threats over and over and over. So what would the punishment have been? I was speculating. Additional council meetings? If you do this again, we'll bring you back in here. I've been to some pretty lame staff meetings in churches before, and that's a good threat. Two hours of that, oh, you know, ow. I, we're going to bring you back in here and do this again. We'll parade you in front of all these people. How about more imprisonment? You do this, we'll throw you in jail again, just like we did last night. Doesn't say that. How about 40 lashings minus one? Could have been the old beating. We'll whip you. We'll beat you within an inch of your life. How about death? You keep doing this, we'll just put you to death. We'll just do to you what we did to your Messiah. Doesn't say. 
And the reason why it doesn't say is because I believe Luke recorded nothing because their threats were empty threats. Threats that lacked any specific punishment. It looks like the Sanhedrin, according to our text, threatened with the age-old, keep doing this or else. You ever said that to your kids if you have kids? Keep doing that or else. Can't come up with anything specific right there. Which to me is frightening as a child because that means the parent is being very creative and will come up with something on the fly. Triple belt whooping. I don't But... Keep, keep, keep preaching the name of Jesus. Keep talking about him or else don't speak or teach in the name of Jesus again or else the great mystery question then becomes or else what? The Sanhedrin had no legal power apart from the Romans. Court cases had to pass through the Roman governor's office, especially capital cases. That's precisely why Jesus went before Pilate. These men had no legal power to do anything. Therefore, what could they possibly do? The answer is nothing. They had no power of their own. They had nothing incriminating against the apostles, which they could have brought before the Roman governor. Therefore, all they could do is threaten with or else. And you know what comes to mind when I think of this? It is the same with the devil. He has no dominion, no power over Christ's church. He's got nothing. His power, his dominion has been stripped. And yet so often we live like he's got power over our lives. We live in fear of him. He doesn't even have legitimate allegations. The Bible says that he literally stands before the throne of God every day making false accusations against us. And who is there to intercept him? Jesus, our mediator, our great high priest is there. Satan has no case against us. He can plead that he does day and night before the throne of God, but the Son of God, our great high priest and mediator, is there to intercept and dispel him. Jesus has reduced the devil's threats to or else. Such is the case. Or else, that's all he's got. Or else else. There may be some here that really need to let this truth sink in. You give the devil too much credit, too much of a foothold in your life. Colossians 2.15 says, he, Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. That's what he did on the cross. That's what he did through the resurrection. He conquered sin and death and the devil and darkness and his minions. He conquered them. He put them to shame, as it says. I believe 
Peter and John understood this. And I believe that that is one of the main reasons why they stood boldly and firmly against the devil and against the Sanhedrin. They know, they knew who had won. Therefore, they could put themselves in, a, in precarious situations, in dangerous situations, because ultimately, it really wasn't all about this one little moment where their lives were being threatened. The battle had been won. Do with us as you will. You've lost no matter what. Kill us. I mean, that's the kind of boldness they had because they were secured in Christ. They knew that the enemy had been defeated. That's how people can engage in death-defying missions. They know who the victor is. And therefore they can go into Muslim countries in these places and even stand on trial and even have their heads cut off. Because ultimately it's just not about my little physical life. It's about the cause of Christ. And if that causes me to have to shed my blood... I'm just doing what the Lord Jesus did. But ultimately, the victory is in Christ. Do as you will. <laughs> Jesus dispatched the devil. Jesus conquered the devil. Jesus put the devil and his minions to shame. He triumphed over them. And I truly believe Peter and John understood this. And that was one of the great motivators for how they could go before a panel of religious leaders that had the power to kill them in an instance. I mean, they didn't have this legal right and all that. They didn't have the authority to do those things on their own, but they sure found a way to railroad Jesus, didn't they? There's always a way when it comes to Satan. He's clever. How are you standing against the devil today? Are you standing as a victor? Or are you cowering as a victim? Christ won. Do you realize how good a news that is? He won. Christ has won. Therefore, be filled with the Holy Spirit and stand victoriously in Christ. Stand in Him against the opposition, against the accusation, against personal sin, against temptation. You won. Look at 21 again. Twenty-one says again. After further threatening them, they let them go. When you stand in the truth of Christ, the devil lets you go. When you proclaim Jesus, he flees. They let them go. Why did they let them go? Because they had no legal power, no case. And the text says they feared the people. The people who witnessed the healing and heard the gospel, 
maybe the 2,000 that got saved during that sermon in Solomon's portico, they were all apparently outside of the hall of hewn stone praising God. You got a dang revival happening right outside of these big stony doors and inside, and outside, yeah! What a sight that must have been. The crowd, the people, the praisers undoubtedly wanted Peter and John and the healed man released. The Sanhedrin then turned them loose. But I believe that it was God the Father who turned them loose because their ministry had just begun. Oh, they would meet in the future a devastating fate. John, I guess, lived to the ripe old age of 3,000. I don't know what he lived to, but he lived a really old age in prison. That's always fun. Spend it all here. Peter was crucified upside down according to church history. But this wasn't their time. They had much work to do. As we'll see in the book of Acts, much work will be done. Much gospel proclamation. Many, many more healings. Many, many more victories. Many, many more people fleeing their sin and their lifestyles to Christ in repentance and faith. It's amazing. So this wasn't their time. Beautifully, the Sanhedrin released them out of fear. But it was really God. Luke added one last really cool detail in 22. Look at it with me. It says, For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. The age of the healed man made the miracle even more awe-inspiring because he had been lame since birth. We found that in the passage earlier, not today, but a week or two ago. This guy spent his entire life confined to a mat. He spent many, many years laying on a mat at the beautiful gate begging for change. Everyone knew who he was. Everyone was familiar with him. And the people marveled at him. They marveled at the fact that the old lame beggar, because 40 was actually, it says he was a little over 40, or 40, he was, says he was more than 40 years old. 40 was actually quite old in those days because people lived basically into their 50s at the most. But they just marveled at this guy that they were so accustomed with and so familiar with. And there's the old lame beggar. He's there. He's there every week. Look at that. He's there every day. You're going to give him something this week? I don't have anything to give him. What do you have? I'm going to give him a shekel. I mean, they just saw him, and they were familiar with him. And they marveled at the fact that he had been healed and that his legs were strong. And they marveled at the fact that he was older. And it was just the coolest thing. They marveled at the fact that he was up and leaping around like a deer, praising God. That's what it said in an earlier passage. <clears throat> what a great text. In ending, I'd like to ask, I'd like to ask you, which person or group of people do you find yourself to be most alike or do you resonate with? at this particular moment in your life. We've seen several different casts of characters in this text. Fictional, no. These were real people who lived, who did these things. And so, who do you find yourself to be most alike? Are you like Peter and John? 
filled with the Holy Spirit, bold, courageous, on fire for Jesus Christ, maybe even uneducated and common. You like them? You would probably say at times yes, all the time, no. Maybe some of you here at this stage or at this moment in your life, that's who you are. You're like Christ Jesus. You're like them. You're bold. You confront error. You confront false belief, hypocrisy, whatever it is. You're bold. Tend to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Are you like the lame beggar? Confined to your physical, spiritual, or emotional mat and in need of the healing touch of Christ. As far as I can tell, there aren't any people here that are confined physically to a mat. But some of you are confined to an emotional mat, maybe a spiritual mat. Maybe your walk with Christ just isn't where you believe He would like for it to be. Or maybe you're just at a place in your life where you're hurt emotionally. That life has been punching you and beating you MMA style. Satan has just beat you up. And he's beat you up through all sorts of different people. And some of them love Jesus. It's always been an astonishing. I get, I, I'm astonished at that. Now, I've, I've put on, I'm a pugilist. I've done it. I'm guilty. The saints are pretty easy to beat up. Maybe, maybe, maybe you are confined to a physical man. Maybe you have some physical ailment or illness that has been plaguing you, harming you. Maybe it's an emotional one. Maybe it's a spiritual one. Christ is the victor. That's it. He's the victor. Your identity, your hope, your value, your security, if you're in Christ, is in Christ. It's not in what people think of you. It's not in their approval. It's not in their treatment of you. You are a cherished son or daughter of the living God if you're in Christ. Christ won. He's your victor. It could very well be that the reason why you're so tormented in this, in this time is because you've lost sight of that. And you need, to, you need to run to him, to his open arms. Are you like the healed beggar? Do you marvel at the work of God? Are you awestruck by his power and grace and hungry to know him more? Maybe he's touched your life, done something in a, a family member's life, in a neighbor's life, in your life. You've sensed and felt the healing touch of Christ. And you're like him, and you're just like a leaping deer. And it looks bizarre when you leap, but who cares? 
and, and you're, just, you're just praising him with your life. It could be you today. Are you like the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, lost, blind, opposed to God and his gospel? Is that who you are today? Lost, blind, and opposed to him? Are you afraid of letting go of your traditions and religion? Do you work hard at trying to hide what is truly inside of you? Are you afraid of being exposed? You see, ultimately, that was the Sanhedrin's problem. He had 71 people playing religion. By external evidence, boy, they sure had it down. But Jesus said that they were nothing more than religious men filled with dead men's bones. They were tombs of iniquity. Is that who you are today? Friend, if you've never repented of your sin and given your heart to Jesus Christ, that's exactly who you are. Friend, Peter and John went into the hall of, hall, the, the, the hall of hewn stone on a rescue mission, is what they did. It wasn't about defending themselves. They went in on a rescue mission to reach 71 members of the highest-ranking religious court in all of the land and probably that has ever existed. Yes, it makes even Rome look small. They went in on a rescue mission to proclaim the gospel, to point out their error so that they would not perish. That's why they went. If that is you, if you are on the other side in opposition and you have now heard the gospel, that, that, that Christ lived a perfect life, obeyed the law perfectly, Ten Commandments and beyond perfectly, did what we could never do because we're all lawbreakers. And then he died on a cross absorbing all of God's wrath towards, towards the sinners, toward, towards sin, towards the church, towards the people that he would call out of darkness. He absorbed all of God's wrath for those iniquities, for those things on his own body. It's amazing what he did. You, you sit there condemned by your own sin. And yet through him, your sins can be removed by what he did. It's an amazing thing. This is the invitation that Peter and John gave the Sanhedrin that day. There's nobody else that can save you except Jesus. Repent and believe. That's what you're called to do here. God commands it. Acknowledge your sin before God. Recognize you're a sinner and you need Him. Cry out to Him for mercy and grace. 
He never refuses anyone who comes under those circumstances. Never. But you could be like the Sanhedrin in that, yes, you love Jesus, but you've got all kinds of tradition and and religion and things that have been blended into this whole thing or carried over from your past, and that's just prohibiting you from even hearing God further today. That happens in the church. We become tribes in the church. We're this little tribe, and there's this little tribe. Tribalism is an affront to the church, to God. But there's these tribes that believe certain things and and all of the emphasis goes on these certain things and and we're these five things. No, we're these five things and that's what we're all about and all of a sudden you you get lost in all of the religion, in all of the tradition, which ultimately makes you a Sadducee or a Pharisee. Either one of those two people. If that's you, you need to repent. Last one, are you like the people who were praising God? It's funny, it's like bipolar. You got the negative, then you got the positive. You got the negative, then you got the It's all over the place. I should know. I'm hot and cold like that. That's why I'm in the middle. Are you like the people who were praising God? I mean, they're like the Artists formerly known as the lame beggar, man. These people were passionate praisers, passionate worshipers, man. They had witnessed the miraculous saving and healing power of God made manifest in the life of this guy. And so many of them had heard the gospel right after he was healed and had responded in faith. 2,000 were saved and baptized, it says. Are you like them? You're a passionate worshiper. I think that each one of these groups or people, we, we can. Re- I think we're all of them sometimes, aren't we? I mean, some days I'm, I'm Peter and John, right? Some I'm, you know, the lame beggar. I'm just, oh, woe is me. Some days I'm like the healed beggar. Jesus, you know, I just, I'm prancing and praising. Nobody sees me do that, by the way. <laughs> They'd be like, ha! <laughs> Some days I'm like the Sanhedrin. I don't reject Jesus Christ. That, 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 that's over with. I'm not in that mode anymore. But sometimes I do reject him in a way. At the very minimum, I reject his people at times because of their different views from mine. Well, I'm a Calvinist. I'm an Arminian. I'm this. I'm that. Some days I'm, I'm like the people who are just praising God. Aren't you thankful for the grace of God? I, I don't think we can be Peter and John all the time. Oh, I want to. Oh, I'm too busy playing the lame beggar on Thursdays, or I'm too busy. Thank God for the grace of God that He rescues sinners and that He sanctifies His saints. Oh, praise God. Who are you like? As we transition into communion, ponder that. Say to God, I think I sense who I'm like, but God, tell me, who am I like right now? Where am I at at this stage in my life? And maybe if that's not such a great thing, because usually it isn't, I know, 
Because every time I do that and there's an assessment, it, uh, it's ugly. Maybe we would just seek him and say, God, we want to be like Christ Jesus. We want to be emboldened and on fire for you. And, 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 and we want to live as victors in you and not play victim. Christ won. He won the battle for us. And equally as important in communion, remember the finished work of Jesus Christ. Because that's what communion signifies. 